From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent, joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest this morning is Stacey Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about copyright laws. How do copyright laws work when it comes to the Internet? Do you need permission to post certain songs or videos on the Internet? If you're an artist of some sort, how can you protect your work on the Internet? Join us this morning at 877-MPB-RING if you have any copyright law questions, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent, joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest this morning is Stacy Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about copyright laws. How do copyright laws work when it comes to the Internet? Do you need permission to post certain songs on the Internet or, or movies or music? If you are an artist of some sort, how can you protect your work in general or on the Internet? You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions or comments about your your copyright rights, 877-672-7464 is the number. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon and Attorney Lantain. How are you two today? Great, Sarita. Good morning. It's always great to have Stacey Lantain on the show. Uh, her her uh, area of interest is so uh, uh, interesting and informative, so I, I'm excited to hear what she has to say. I'm very excited. Unfortunately, with my area of interest, it's usually, I don't know, it depends. That's usually what I end up saying. So, (laughs) Well, I'm sure we'll get some some definite answers today. Um, And Professor Gershon, I just wanted to ask you really quickly. um, I saw that the uh, House Republicans have uh, produced uh, some legislation uh, about uh, Barack Obama's former affordable health care law, and now they have uh, provided a replacement. Um, How how soon could this go into effect? Uh, What's the process of this replacement? replacement taking effect? Well, Sharita, it goes through, fortunately, I mean, our laws have to go through a process before they can become enacted. So, you know, it'll come out of uh, uh, one branch, uh, one house, uh, the, either the, you know, the uh, uh, House of Representatives or the Senate will propose a bill and then it has to go to the other one. And usually they, you know, they, they change it a little bit along the way and then they have to vote on it and they have to each one would have to approve the law and then it has to be signed by the president so it's a process and that's what we want our laws to be that way we don't want them just to be proclamations yeah there were some really bizarre things just happening over the past few days um we saw president trump tweet about a uh, uh, former president obama possibly wiretapping him and 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 uh, engaging in some surveillance uh what do you think could come of that what would happen as far as the justice department uh who would president trump have to go through to uh, try to confirm or, you know, debunk this uh, this accusation? Well, that would have to come through, through Congress, actually. I mean, it, it, that's, you know, the Constitution is pretty clear that those investigations are not initiated by the president but are initiated by Congress. And, again, I'm glad we have a process. That's what this is all about. I'm a lawyer, and, and you know, lawyers uh, want to see evidence. I, you know, anybody can accuse anybody of something, 
but show me the facts, show me the evidence, prove it. Yeah. Well, this is such an interesting time to have our president tweeting about things so seriously. I'm I'm still getting adjusted to it. I'll be honest. I was Uh, going to say that (laughs) as far as social media is concerned, that's um, that's more my area. And we are also trying to get used to it because I I teach a lot of social media law and um, we talk a lot about people's tweets and whether or not you take people's tweets seriously. And, hey, it's just a place where people sound off. So how much damage could be done? And it's it's interesting to think how now that we live in a world where the president is tweeting, are, is this going to change the direction that we're, we're moving this jurisprudence as far as how we treat what people are saying on social media? Yeah. So, uh, Professor Lantain, uh, do studies show that we are moving into a space where folks are looking at tweets as a more serious platform uh, because you have celebrities who make official apologies on Twitter? I mean, to some, it really is. These, Depending on what you tweet, um, you know, this it, things can get really out of hand for you. Yeah. And I think um, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure about studies. And I also think what's interesting about all of this is it moves so quickly. Right. Like just the difference between your perception of Twitter between last year at this time and this year at this time is incredibly fast. Um, I actually just saw a tweet from someone that was like, remember when we used to use this website to talk about how we all liked hamburgers, you know, and it's like, (laughs) yeah, remember when that's what you did on social media. Um, But I do think that. The fact that people are starting to use it more seriously as a platform by which they are communicating serious um, statements and also, in many instances, the only platform by which they are communicating serious statements, I think that is going to start to change the perception of how people treat tweets. So um, just last year, I taught Internet law, and one of the cases that we looked at was a case involving a tweet by Courtney Love about Um, an attorney that she had been working with. And she basically implied in the tweet that the attorney was taking bribes from the other side. Like she just wasn't happy with her representation. And he either sued, I think he did sue for defamation. And the court was like, well, you know, it's Twitter. People don't take it seriously. Everybody takes it with a grain of salt. You're just Mm -hmm. sounding off like it's totally fine. And I do wonder just a year later if we would have a court think the same thing, that people just brush off what happens on Twitter now that it has become such a source of, to be honest, Twitter's where I get my news. So once it becomes a source, I find it a really reliable, you know, if you follow enough people, you get quick breaking news really quickly and, and usually a range of sides depending on how you've crafted your twitter list and um i know i'm not alone i know it's where most of my friends go to for their news and then you supplement you know with with the new york times or the washington post or whatever Mm -hmm. but i think in that environment where we've started to and that's not how i was last year at this time last year at this time i did not get my news from twitter so i think it's moving really quickly and that's what makes my area of law so much fun to practice but also challenging and why my answer is it depends because of how quickly our perceptions change and how much that depends, how much the law depends on those perceptions. Right. And, and I'm with you on uh, how you get your news because I get mine from Facebook, uh, CNN. See, I can't do Facebook. It upsets me too much. And also, I don't trust their <laughs> privacy settings. Oh, really? OK. I well, get mine from MPB. But I, anyway, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> just make me look bad, Dean. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I have uh, NBC, CNN, uh, and MPB where you can see first uh, when they post something. And it's instant. I like the fact that it's instant. Yeah. You don't have to wait on something to go to, to television. I mean, honestly, I haven't turned on my television at least a couple weeks, and I've still been able to keep up with everything that's going on. So it's amazing. And um, we're going to be talking about copyright law uh, with social media as an element and, and how it works. But if we can just get a, a refresher about copyright law in general, um, you know, I think when the original Copyright Act came out, um, I read that it was designed to protect authors. But could you talk about uh, all of the things that kind of fall under copyright law? We talk about books and movies and other things like that. Yeah, definitely. You're right. It still actually is written as protecting authors. It just has a more expansive definition of author than we do. When we say author, we tend to think of books or poems or plays. Um, but that author includes musicians and computer scientists who are writing computer code and choreographers and um, people who write lyrics, people who do singing, people who are sculptors, um, sculptors, sculptors, not mm-hmm. the sculptors themselves, people who are painters. Um, all of those things can be authors. Um, so basically, copyright is a very old right. It, it was founded in the very early 18th century when sort of in reaction to the printing press. And so that's why it started out thinking about authors, because at the time we were worried about books. And then as we've moved on creatively and and we've started thinking about, well, what about these people? They're doing cool stuff, too. We've kind of expanded it as we need to to meet um, whatever's happening at the time. So it covers movies, it covers songs, it covers poems, it covers my speaking to you right now that's being recorded at the radio station. It covers computer programs. It covers dances. It covers um, plays, musicals, speeches, paintings, any kind of visual artwork that you're doing. Um, Really anything creative that you are engaged in is going to be covered by copyright law as long as you are doing what we call fixing it in a tangible medium. So what this means is You don't own a copyright until you have created something that is perceivable by somebody else. So you might have the world's greatest novel sitting in your head, but you don't have a copyright on it until you write it down because we can't Mm. see it while it's in your head. So that's your only um, trick. And actually, it is important for people like who are doing choreography. You want to fix it in some way, right? You have to make a videotape of it or write down what the moves are or something like that because otherwise you don't have a federal copyright over that kind of thing. The same for like stand-up comedians. It's tough for them. Um, you have to make sure that you're recording the, the routine or that you've written it down somewhere in order to get some kind of federal protection over it. Yeah, no, that that is extremely interesting, uh, the idea that you kind of have to have evidence um, because if you share an idea with somebody, say movie producers are talking and one producer shares an idea with another and then the other producer goes and makes a movie out of the idea that the original uh, producer shared, they can't really sue or anything because they didn't make the movie first. That's exactly right. And this is actually one of the most important mistakes that I see people make online and I always want to like hug them for it because I know that we're not getting this point across to them, but you don't actually own an idea. Mm. So yeah, if you tell someone your cool idea for a movie and then they turn around and make it, there's really not a whole lot you can do in terms of suing them for it because you don't own that idea. Um, 
it's that's it's sort of like a First Amendment um, protection that we have built into copyright, right? Like otherwise, we'd only have basically one movie would come out every year, right? Because all movies are like the same. I read an article once that said that all stories humans tell fit six different templates. Like that's it. <laughs> so that's why we don't own ideas because we'd never have any more creativity. Um, but if you have a great idea that you want to share with someone, you need to protect it by contract. And so people who work in Hollywood are, are usually pretty decent about this, that before they have any discussions, they'll have a contract that they enter into like, hey, we're talking about stuff and it all belongs to me, so you can't go and use it without my permission. Um, but I find that people who are not, you know, big Hollywood types that have lawyers sitting in their pockets all day don't realize that they have to do this. And I just read mm. these tragic stories of really inventive, interesting, like YouTube creators who have talks with bigger companies and they're like, this is my idea for an awesome viral video. And then that video comes out and they're devastated. And it's just like, well, but you needed a contract to protect yeah. yourself because just the idea for a viral video, you can't actually own that until it's fixed in a tangible medium and you've expressed it in some way. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Um, Bob is on the line with a question about patents. Uh, 877-MPB-RING is the number if you want to join the conversation. We're talking about copyright law this morning. So if you have a question about um, an idea you have, if you're an artist of some sort and you want to know what your rights are as far as it, uh, copyright goes, give us a call at 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, good morning to you, Bob. What is your question? How y'all doing? Doing great. All right, this is a question. I want to know if these uh, seven or so government agencies of our federal government that are able to, uh, re to be requested to get a FISA order to line tap and have surveillance on people such as Donald Trump and his administration, uh, to, would they have to have a, a copyright on their equipment and uh, also... Uh, a patent on the uh, process used to gain this uh, surveillance information that was requested by the Obama shadow government that's used to interfere with Donald Trump's administration. All I want to know is what you think about that. And uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm going to hang up and listen. Okay, Bob, thank you for that question. Um, Professor Lantane, what do you think about that? Um, so the government actually doesn't own copyrights it can have copyrights assigned to it but it doesn't possess copyrights in the things that it creates so the government shouldn't own any copyrights in any of the surveillance that it might be doing of us although it's always very interesting um if you are having a regular telephone conversation there's no copyright in that because nobody's recording it theoretically if the government is listening and recording it there could be a debate about who it is who owns the copyright because the government's the one recording it, except for the fact that we don't let the government own copyrights unless it gets assigned to them. So that wouldn't be problematic. As far as patenting the process, the thing about patents is they have to be um, novel and also non-obvious. Those are the official like words in the statute. But basically what it means is there has to be something unique about them, something that's like, we think is super impressive and amazing that we're going to protect it. And I don't know much about wiretapping. This is not really my field, but I would be surprised if the government's doing anything super unique that they would be patenting that process. I'm sure they're just doing whatever they've been doing, frankly, for 10, 15 years, however long this has been going on for. And patents only last 20 years. So they're not really, even if they had a patent at the very beginning, they'd be almost out of patent now anyway. So, yeah. Mm. 
And, and I think really then the, the issue would be the Fourth Amendment, mm. and the Constitution, and more of a. And we, you know, that which would is be not more my a, specialty. So <laughs> mine either. And you know, that's a, that's a really a, about criminal procedure more than anything else because, you know, there's a right. There is a right not to have uh, the government, uh, uh, you know, search you, and and unless you know they have a warrant. And, uh, you know, if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, then the government's not supposed to uh, get uh, your information. But, you know, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy on a cell phone, really, because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's information, as we know now, is pretty easily hearable by anybody or on your baby monitor or things like that. So, you know, really, that's more of a, a discussion for another day, I think. And actually, though, to, to piggyback off of that, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your social media. Because that's just out there in the world for for everyone to see. So we were talking about Trump with Twitter, um, and he definitely doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that because that's clearly going all around the world. But I think that people sometimes think that their social. This was actually my my Facebook thing, right? Like, if I'm going to engage on Facebook, I have to be okay with every single person in my life knowing every single thing I'm saying on Facebook. It's not really a private conversation. And I think that's important for people to realize about social media. I think we treat it as if we're just chatting with our friends and it's, it's really much, it's kind of like you're chatting with your friends, but on a bullhorn, <laughs> like in front of an audience of several thousand people. So not hurt. even in a private group, because I know folks that have private so groups, the private group thing. So that's what's, that's actually why, um, I am, I am careful with Facebook because I thought I was in a private group and then it turned out that I was not in a private group because oh. of some weird privacy setting thing. So you can definitely manage your Facebook settings to be as private as possible. That said, you need to watch them because there's, there's, they can be, they can be tricky. There could be people having access that you don't realize. And um, while you might have a reasonable expectation of privacy that maybe the government would have to overcome some kind of presumption to get at that, you can't really control what the other people in that conversation are going to do with whatever information that you are sharing. And I don't mean to imply that everyone has untrustworthy friends, but if you say something and it's not written down, it's really hard for that gossip to get past the initial conversation. But if you say something and it is written down and then you have a falling out six years later, I, the Internet is forever. So I And I'm the queen of screenshots. So typically, <laughs> exactly. I'm going to screenshot it. So, all right. Uh, very interesting things we're talking about here. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we get back, we'll continue the conversation about copyright law and uh, we'll continue the conversation about social media. How do copyright laws work when it comes to the Internet? Do you need permission to post certain things, uh, songs, or videos on the Internet? If you are an artist of some sort, an author, photographer, and you have questions about it, your copyright laws, how your copyright rights, how to protect your work, 877-MPB-RING is the number, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Sherita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon and Professor Stacy Lantain of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And today we are talking about copyright laws and we're tying in the element of social media. How do copyright laws work when it comes to the Internet? Do you need permission to post certain songs or videos on the Internet? If you are an artist of some sort and you have a general question about copyright laws, how to protect your work, call us at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We do have several phone lines open if you want to join the conversation. All right, we're going to Max, who's in Lowndes County, with a question. Good morning to you, Max. What do you have for us today? Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I'm an artist, and I was just wondering a couple of famous cases. One is the uh, uh, the famous uh, Andy Warhol Campbell soup can that were painted. The, the, those paintings are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Would Campbell soup can would Campbell soup be uh, protected by uh, liable laws? And, and and the reason I'm asking this is because as an artist, I use. Um, found objects i use found like for instance found uh, photographs uh uh and then uh alter them i i i, I paint over them so uh i don't obscure them but i but i use them in a, in a in a system of collages so for instance if i used your photograph that i i had found and uh painted a mustache and a beard on it would i still be liable for uh, copyright thank you all right thank you for that question max we appreciate it yeah, this is a fantastic question, actually, and one that I spend a lot of time teaching and debating with my students. Um, so two things. First, there's there's two slightly different sets of law here. So the Campbell's Soup Can is actually more of a trademark type of thing because they're selling you a product and they're not really being creative, right? So trademarks cover when people are selling you products, like Apple has a trademark and Toyota has a trademark and Campbell's Soup has a trademark. Um, but... You're also right that there's copyright being implicated when you take someone's photograph and you rework it in some way in your art, which is another thing that artists do very frequently. In both of those cases, we tend to say that the artists um, are fine, that you are protected by a defense that's called fair use. So ordinarily, you would not be able to take someone's photograph and do as you wish with it. But if you are doing it... Um, in order to offer some kind of commentary, um, which artists frequently are, right? Like you're trying to make some kind of statement about what's going on in the world. Um, we do have cases that protect the artist's right to do that and to express themselves artistically and creatively using other people's copyrighted works and other people's trademarks because that is part of the cultural dialogue, that, that they're part of our cultural conversation. So Andy Warhol's Campbell's soup cans might not have been commissioned by Campbell, but the thinking goes that nobody really thinks that it, they have been, right? Like they, they see that as being a work of art and a commentary on our consumer society, and that's not harming Campbell's soup or its reputation in any way. So could there be fights about this? Absolutely. I mean, theoretically, there could be fights about absolutely anything, right? Um, so, for instance, people have been sued several times by Mattel, who owns um, a copyright and a trademark on Barbie. And um, they're frequently using Barbie in songs or in artwork to make comments on, you know, the, the messages that we give little girls and, and all of this kind of stuff. And the artists in 
every case that I can think of off the top of my head have always won because the courts have basically said they're making a commentary, they're making fair use of what Barbie stands for, and um, no one is confused and thinks that Barbie is endorsing artwork or anything like that. All right, Max, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. 877 MPB rings the number. This morning we're talking about copyright laws and we're tying in the element of the Internet. Um, so, Professor Lantane, um, when it comes to the Internet, uh, let's talk about songs, for instance. If I post a song from YouTube and say it belongs to uh, Marvin Gaye, it's Marvin Gaye's song. Um, and I use it under my video. For instance, I do videos on Facebook and sometimes I may put a song underneath it. Do I have the right to do that or do I need to get permission from the original artist? So this is actually a fairly unsettled point of law and you're going to find people on both sides of, of this question. Um, I think many, many people would argue that what you're doing is okay because it would be a fair use. Um, and so fair use is, I've mentioned it a couple of times, it's a defense that we have in copyright law for something that would otherwise be problematic, right? Like without fair use, you definitely are infringing the song. You don't have the right to use it. But fair use looks at what your purpose is in using the song and whether or not you're using it to sort of um, be lazy and, and steal a bunch of money from another artist, right? Like that's basically what the thinking is. Or are you using it because you're transforming it in some way and you're just using it for your personal use and then we would think that that sort of stuff is totally okay. So when you're putting a video, when you're putting a song over a video on YouTube, I think a lot of people would argue, well, you're using it for a slightly different purpose because now you're using it to illustrate whatever the point of your video is. And also you're not really substituting necessarily for the for the primary market for the song as it exists out there you're on youtube and a lot of people on youtube are not making a ton of money and so it's not going to be for a commercial purpose you're just doing it for yourself and and i think a lot of people would argue that's fair use um you would also however have the copyright holders of those songs and they would argue absolutely not that's definitely copyright infringement you're just taking their song um and you're basically stealing it without paying for it and we have this um, system, we have a statute called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that governs what's going on on YouTube and on the Internet generally. And if you are a copyright holder, you can contact YouTube and say, hey, these people have my copyrighted work in their video. YouTube is required under the statute to take it down very promptly. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a person who's sitting here listening to me talking and being like, I've done that and I've had it taken down. Yeah, because the copyright holder probably told YouTube that it was infringing and YouTube is required by the statute to take it down promptly. Um, you can fight that if you wish, but of course that costs money and a lot of people don't, which is why it's still an unsettled point of law. We don't have a whole lot of law out there about this. What we do have so far is a case working its way through the court system that I think it just got granted cert by the Supreme Court. I don't know if I have this right, but it's called Lens. And it's actually about a mother who posted a video to YouTube of her children dancing to a Prince song. And um, the song got removed. There was a copyright claim brought by Prince or Universal Music Group or whoever owns Prince's copyrights. And um, she actually did fight with the help of some lawyers who donated their time and they've been winning that it was mm. fair use. So I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court just took that case and we will have a ruling from them 
about that, I think. And some of them, I think, you know, this is just a personal story. My, my daughter did a voice recital, and, you know, you can set up a, a private YouTube site, and I did that so that fa- friends and family could mm-hmm. uh, see the voice recital. And, uh, and then my wife wanted to download uh, the videos to a DVD because it was just easier to use. And one of them came up with a copyright claim, one of the songs that my daughter did in her voice recital. And there's a place on YouTube where you can file a, an exception. And, and, you know, and I think some of the companies, like with what you talked about with Prince, they're going to fight. Mm-hmm. This one, it was just, okay, as soon as I said, hey, it was, it was fair use, the except, you know, the, it disappeared. The copyright disappeared and we could download it because I think, you know, she wouldn't, we weren't getting paid for it. And it was for a high school, you know, voice recital. So it's really interesting how quickly those things happen. Yeah. Uh, before we go to the break, we're going to go to Chris, who's on the road and has a question about uh, poor man's copyright, which is something I've heard of. Good morning to you, Chris. What do you have for us today? Uh, good morning. Yeah, I was just wondering whether or not uh, that concept of a poor, poor man's copyright offers any real protection, you know, basically just taking a copy of the music or artwork and, you know, mailing it to yourself or, you know, to a post office box. How does that work? It, does it offer any protection? All right. Thanks for that question, Chris. Um, so the poor man's copyright uh, used to have a lot more, well, a little bit more, um, power before the digital age when we really had things that were mostly in paper form because when we had things that were mostly in paper form it was hard to date them right when you think about it it's really hard to prove to someone when you wrote a particular thing that's sitting on a piece of paper right because not even putting the date on it is really going to prove that you wrote it on that date you can just backdate it to whatever date you need and this is relevant in copyright disputes because um as long as you come up with something on your own, you're cool. It doesn't matter, you know, if you were necessarily the first one to do it, as long as you came up with it independently. And that can be proven according to the date, right? Like if you come up with it before you were aware of somebody else's copyrighted work, then that protects you. So my understanding is that people used to mail stuff to themselves in order to lock in the date, right? Like it proves that on this particular date, you had this working question in this format and that that could be proof that you could rely upon, that you created it yourself, that you didn't copy it from anybody else. Now that most things happen digitally, that's much less important because your computer is generally keeping metadata that tells you when the date is. So if you get into this kind of dispute, it's really easy to just go back into your computer files and be like, hey, I opened this file for the first time on such and such date, right? Like my computer has kept that for me. And yeah, I guess theoretically people could be, you know, tampering with that, but it's 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 much easier these days. So I don't think it, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't give you any protection. Your legal protection is independent of whether or not you have sent it to yourself. And my understanding is that people were really using it just to try to lock in their dates. And now that we're better with keeping dates, we don't we don't really need that anymore. But your protection starts from the moment that you write something down. Um, you are protected independently. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to mail it to yourself or anything like that. I'm a writer myself. I've never mailed anything to myself because I'm I'm also a lawyer. And so I'm fairly confident that I have protection independently and i do all my writing on a computer so i know that there's a date on everything 
All right, Chris, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. It's time for a break. And we do have some lines open if you want to join the conversation this morning. We're talking about copyright laws. If you are an artist and you want to know how to protect your work, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. Maybe you have an idea and you're wondering uh, how you can protect it. 877-672-7464 is the number. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Now, welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent. Joined this morning by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest is Stacey Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're talking about copyright laws, how they work when it comes to the Internet. Do you need permission to post certain songs or videos on the Internet? If you want to know what your rights are as an artist, how to protect your work, give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. If you want to know uh, the difference between a copyright, patent, things like that, trademark 877-672. 7464 is the number, or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're going to go back to the phones. Fletch is in Indianola with a question. Good morning to you, Fletch. What do you have for us today? Good morning. Hey. A little bit of an extension on the poor man's copyright. It was my understanding that if you, uh, I'm a wannabe painter, photographer, it's my understanding if you put the little circle C, the copyright uh, insignia, whether you hang something in a restaurant or put it on, on the Internet, that that could be a little bit of a CYA. Any truth to that? Yeah, so that um, you're not required to do that. But, yes, you do get um, – it puts everyone on notice that there is a copyright on the thing. You should be on notice anyway, to be totally honest, because almost everything you see that's creative is going to be copyrighted. Um, but yes, using the little C with a circle around it puts people on notice. What that basically means for you is um, you get better damages if you have to sue people. So the money, the money that you could be entitled to would be more money because it can't be innocent on their part. They know that there was a copyright on it because you told them that there was a copyright on it. So if, it's, if I don't write it or don't post it, is, is there any coverage there? Is there anything understood even if you don't? No. So if you if you don't post the little C, it's still copyrighted. That doesn't change its status. And if someone takes it from you, it's still going to be infringing. It's just you won't get as much money because well, you might not get as much money because they could be able to say, oh, I didn't know. I thought it was free for the taking. It doesn't say copyrighted. I mean, whether or not a judge is going to believe that, right, there's all sorts of circumstances that um, would go into play for this. But if you have the C with the copyright, so Basically, there's a defense that someone can raise to infringement that says that it was innocent. I didn't know. I didn't mean to do it. They're still in trouble. They still have to pay you something. But if it's innocent, courts tend to not want to, you know, throw the hammer at them. Um, but if you have the C with the circle around it, they can't make that claim that it was innocent. Is and the, so it's it, better would protection. Would a cease and desist be uh, effective regardless of whether you stated it 
regardless if you're asking for monetary compensation. Yeah, so um, for most people, the very first step that you take when you think that someone has taken something that's copyrighted of yours is to send a cease and desist, like you said. And that um, you can send that regardless of whether or not you have a C with a circle on it. You can send it regardless, really, of whether or not you've even registered it as a copyright. You can send a letter saying, this is my copyrighted thing. Please stop using it. Um, if they persist in using it after receiving a cease and desist letter, it can be evidence of what we would call willful infringement. And again, that gets you more money because um, courts tend to, especially in the IP context, scale their damages that they hand out according to how terrible they think the, the actor was behaving. And so a cease and desist letter can help you protect that. What's really great about a cease and desist letter, though, is that honestly, sometimes people really are genuinely not trying to infringe on copyright and just do something without thinking about it. And they'll get your letter and they'll say, oops, my bad. And they'll take it down. And nobody has to have a huge fight and go to court. And everyone is happier at the end of the day. So that's a really wonderful side effect of cease and desist letters. Sometimes if you are using them to vindicate um, legitimate rights. All right, Fletch, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. We're going to stay on the lines going next to Ann, who's in past Christianity with a question. Good morning to you, Ann. What do you have for us today? Yes, I have um, a question. I have a cyber stalker who has started a community page. This person lives in another state. <clears throat> I live here in Mississippi. And she has taken photographs of my son, posting them on this community Facebook page. I have reported the page to Facebook. Of course, I'm dealing with a robot, I guess. And I just need to know what type of legal action I can do. She's slandering. She has stopped my business. Um, she has gone to Facebook groups and slandered me. What can I do to prevent and stop this person? Wow. Okay, and sorry that you're uh, going through that. Any thoughts on that, uh, Attorney Lentang? Yeah, that's um, that's a terrible situation, and I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm I'm sorry about your frustrations dealing with getting it taken off of Facebook. That's um, you're right. You probably are dealing with a robot, and it can be hard to get Facebook to pay attention. Um, although Facebook can take pages down in certain circumstances that it that it wants to. So um, I would keep pursuing that because that could turn out to be an avenue that would be helpful to you. As far as the other stuff, though, the slandering, um, the taking photographs of your son and posting them without permission, that all, and especially, I, I don't know how far this goes, but I don't know if you fare an escalation of what's going on, but I think that I might talk to a lawyer because this is not especially copyright based i think that it's going beyond that into affecting possibly um like a personal tort sort of thing and so i would see if you can find a lawyer and there are lawyers who specialize in this kind of cyber stalking stuff um and so that i think it, that would be my recommendation that they would know what to do it's it's hard to get stuff taken off the internet it's hard to control people's actions on the internet we all know that this is true um and I, there is there are lawyers who specialize in like the weird sort of ways that you have to 
pursue this. And they honestly, they cobble together a bunch of laws because we don't have really great cyber stalker laws out there that are covering all of this. And sometimes copyright is the way to go about it. But if she's taking the photographs or he, I don't know which gender, um, if they're taking the photographs, then they have the copyright on those photographs and can do what they like with them, which is, which is scary. Right. And so, um, I'm not sure that IP law is the best way to go about dealing with that. I would recommend continuing to pester Facebook if it continues to keep happening. And um, if you if you are concerned enough, I think it's not a bad idea to consult with a lawyer, um, especially one who's familiar with this kind of stuff. Well, they keep making fake Facebook profiles, even. And I am having to spend umpteen hours a day trying to report these fake profiles. Yeah, and, and that... just like, I, I am at my wit's end. It's affected my family. It has affected my livelihood. It is affecting my credibility. And, what I, I mean, I just, I don't know how to stop it. I Right now, I do not have, am not in the financial situation to go ahead and hire an attorney. I would have to find an attorney pro bono that would be willing to take this case She's also made recordings that um, you are not allowed to, in the state of Florida is where she lives, you are not allowed to record without someone knowing that you're recording. And she's also a felon, I have found out, and she has been in jail for stealing people's identity. Wow. Um, and, wow, this sounds really, really complex, um, and uh, I'm sure we can't just get too deep into it because uh, it's a personal matter on the air, but uh, hopefully you can find a, find a pro bono lo- lawyer or try to block those people or maybe just get away from social media for a while uh, altogether and hope that it goes away. Uh, any any final uh, suggestions for Ann attorneys? Um, not, I, I, unfortunately, no. It is it is frustrating. It does take a lot of time to to be fighting something like this, and I'm I'm sorry about that. Um, one thing that I would say is that there there is, in my understanding, a reasonable number of attorneys out there who are willing to take these cases on pro bono because they are trying to fight against how um, not helpful the laws can be in this field. So, r- running some Google searches might help at least open up an avenue to try to find um, places, lawyers who are willing to do this stuff. And if if she is in Florida, one thing I would also try to figure out is maybe there are Florida law schools who might be doing something that is focusing on this that, that would be willing to help out pro bono. I don't know. Do you have any other ideas? No, I think that's a great idea. Law schools often get involved in pro bono work and work with uh, legal services. Um, the only thing I did, I did Google uh, just on cyber stalking a lawyer in Florida who, I, I, I mean, this is not an endorsement or a recommendation, but his just name came up, a guy named William Robinson in Orlando. And he says he's not available to work for contingency, but can be consulted as a resource. So, again, I think there are lawyers who understand the issue and it can at least get you going in the right direction especially for the for just a first conversation about all of this i think that i don't i don't want to say most lawyers but i think many lawyers would would at least talk to you about what your problem is before handing you across the bill for several thousand dollars so all right uh and good luck to you thank you for calling and i really really hope things get better uh we need to take a really quick break and we get back we have rachel and rick and mikey to get to so you guys if you could just hold on for a moment this is in legal terms on mpb think radio we'll be back in just a moment 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Professors Richard Gershon and Stacey Lantain, and we've been talking about copyright laws today and your rights as it pertains to copyright laws, and we have several calls to get to before the show ends. We're going first to Rachel in Tupelo, who has a question. Good morning to you, Rachel. What do you have for us today? Um, hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to uh, ask a question about um, uh, videos that I see on Facebook that are getting shared. Um, because I can tell that they were created or posted maybe on YouTube by um, a, a specific person. You know, so like, for instance, somebody might post a video of their kid saying something really funny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I see it reposted or re-uploaded and shared by, like, a monetized Facebook account. You know, like, y- people can follow pages, um, you know, that are, I think, monetized or that have some sort of, you know... Um, economic benefit to the people who own them and then i wonder about the people who originally posted their video of their their funny kid you know um are they receiving a benefit from that if the monetized page sort of takes over even if they give them credit you know and that seems sort of like a violation of copyright and i was curious about that okay good question rachel thank you yeah um it is a good question so it it depends on what the circumstances are of the posting on Facebook. Sometimes it is being posted by the person who put the video on YouTube because sometimes they are cross-platform or sometimes they have a relationship with the person who posts on Facebook like that they mean to be promoting on that, right? Like that they've asked for to be promoted on it because they have a great following or whatever it is, in which case everyone's cool. Um, if it's posted without the original YouTube poster's permission... I'm sure that often the original YouTube poster is not happy. Um, it does seem like if the person is just post reposting it and if it's a monetized situation, so it's not your personal YouTube, that seems less like fair use to me because you are taking somebody else's work and using it for your own financial gain, which is usually the definition of what a copyright infringement is. So you're right to have an instinct that that looks like copyright infringement because it possibly is. Um, As a practical matter, once you put something online as an artist, it's like incredibly difficult to keep control of it. Um, And you will spend a lot of time trying to track it down in all different places where it might show up. You can, if you are the creator, submit a DMCA notice of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that we've been talking about. If you're the YouTube poster, you can submit one to Facebook saying, hey, my copyrighted work shows up on this page without my permission. They will take it down for you as they are required to do under the statute. But this does require you to have to to know that it's there, right? To be able to go around and police it in that way. Okay. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for that call. I appreciate it. We go next to Rick in Grand Bay with a question. Good morning to you, Rick. Good morning. I have two short questions. I wrote a uh I wrote a piece uh, in 1973 uh, while I was in drug treatment program. It was published in a local newspaper with my permission. It later wound up in a book written by a woman, and she attributed it to herself in 1976. Uh, would I have any legal standing to go in now? I mean, I don't know if there's any statute of limitations on that. Number two, I, I still write, and if I post it to Instagram, 
and I make sure that you can't click it and get the URL so you can download it to, because they have these apps that you can download uh, stuff from you uh, from Instagram, you know, copy it. Mm-hmm. I have that blocked. Would that be considered almost as a uh, uh, the date that I wrote it for copyright purposes? Um, so to your second question, yeah, the date that you posted it to Instagram would probably be considered the date that you wrote it um, for copyright purposes. And so you wouldn't have to worry about the, the dating, right? Like it's going to be there automatically. If you wrote it beforehand, before you posted it to Instagram, you can also, you have the ability to make that proof as well. Um, but yeah, that's probably what's going to be taken as the date of creation for, for copyright purposes. As for the first one, there is a statute of limitations in Copyright Act of three years. Um, but we have a very recent case out of the Supreme Court that was only, I think, three years ago now um, that says that copyright infringement is an ongoing harm. So you do not have to bring it within three years of the first time of copyright infringement. You can bring it much later than that. The problem is you're only going to get damages based on infringement that's happened three years prior to when you bring suit. So if this is not a book that is still being actively sold, to fight about it now might not get you a lot of money. Might it get it taken out of future printings of the books or something like that? Yes, possibly. Um, but it, it it is a while ago. So although we have this ruling from the Supreme Court, um, most courts have this equitable sort of knee-jerk reaction against um, lawsuits that that have been lingering for a long time because it's difficult because it's difficult to get evidence it's difficult to to litigate those kinds of things that's why we have statutes of limitations in in the first place so um while you might technically be able to go to court you might not be happy with what you get in response from the court if that makes sense all right, Rick, thank you so much for your call. Um, Mikey, we are not going to have time to get to your call. We have reached the bottom of the show. If you could send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org, Mikey, we'd greatly appreciate it, and we'll try to get an answer for you. But thank you for calling. And if you did not get to call and you still have a question about copyright laws, email us, legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, that's going to wrap us up. Professor Lantane, thank you so much for being on today. And you, you. as well, Professor Gershon, we appreciate it. Stay tuned. Coming up next is Southern Remedy, Rel- We'll be speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress right here on MPB Think Radio.